Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the early 2000s, one of the best high schools in the country did an experiment to find out what we learn or don't learn in school. The high school is called Lawrenceville, and it's in New Jersey. You know, it's $70,000 a year for boarding school high school kids now. I mean, very competitive to get into, feed the Ivy Leagues. That's Ted Dintersmith, who has written about Lawrenceville's decision to understand how much their students were absorbing. And they did this great experiment, and I think more power to them, where they retested kids in the fall on the essential things they covered the prior school year. Did they retain what they had studied? So they took a test in the spring. They went away to do whatever they did during the summer. And then they came back in the fall. And the evolution was interesting. They took their final in June. Some people there said, let's have them retake the final. Some of the faculty were nervous and said, well, there's low-level stuff in the final they may not remember. Begs the question why that would be on a final. But they said, take out the low-level stuff. Let's just retest the kids on the essential concepts we think all of our students mastered. The average grade went from a B-plus to an F. Not one kid over two years on lots of subjects retained everything that they thought they all had retained. And they realized if you just cram it into short-term memory for an exam that you really are just doing to jump through the hoops, that doesn't stick. And if it doesn't stick, it begs the question of what was the point. Dintersmith has actually spent years asking that very question. What's the point? He was a venture capitalist, and he became wealthy funding growing tech companies. But along the way, he started to wonder how effective our education system was. Because when it came to who became successful in the companies that he funded, he found himself noticing some strange patterns. The applicants, the founders with the impeccable academic credentials, weren't very good at innovation. You know, it was often a more, you know, checkmarked resume, lots of C's and lots of A. I'm just weird was better than straight A. Once he retired, having seen the rise of automated factories and the increasing power of artificial intelligence to do lots of tasks that used to be done by humans, Dintersmith started crisscrossing the country, visiting schools and seeing how they were preparing kids for the jobs of the future. And what he found worried him. All the things they need to be really great in a world defined by innovation are being discouraged. And they're being encouraged to memorize material, replicate low-level procedures, and follow instructions, which is exactly what machine intelligence excels at. And so if the high watermark, if the, the figure of merit in our schools is something machine intelligence does perfectly for free, what's that leave our kids? And I just said, whoa. This is, this is not a little thing. This is defining for our society, for our nation. He went on to make a documentary and to write books about what he was seeing, including his most recent, What School Could Be. The basic model of the many schools adhere to today, most by, by a far margin, is geared up for the industrial economy. You know, as I said, memorize material, replicate low-level procedures, follow instructions. That defined the jobs of the last century. The problem is those jobs are gone, but that model just clings and clings and clings. And trying to get us to reimagine school away from that, I think, is our biggest challenge. The frustration of having come from the tech world, where he could see that all sorts of jobs had disappeared and all sorts of others were on the chopping block, and then heading into schools that didn't seem to be preparing kids for that changed reality, it made Dintersmith worry about the possibility of widespread marginalization and alienation. I started saying, now this, you know, goes back 10 years ago. I'd say to my friends that if we don't get school right fairly quickly, 
I'm not convinced our democracy will hold together. And 10 years ago, people thought I just had lost it. I mean, you knew, you knew they were sort of saying retirement's not agreeing well with Ted. He should get back to venture capital. In my last 100 talks, when I say that, nobody bats an eye. Because if people are, feel marginalized, if they're under constant pressure, if they're not equipped coming out of school to create their own path forward, if they're feeling like they're victims to robotics or smart software or whatever, they're marginalized. They just feel like they've been cut off from things. And if we're setting up not a few kids, but if we're setting up millions of kids to fail in different ways, you know, I think the kids in the power schools that that just take great pride in their test scores are being set up to fail in one way. The kids in these schools, it's heartbreaking to see some of these schools that the building should be condemned. They, they're not getting anywhere near the resources they need because they're in a low-income community with low property taxes. They have their own different set of challenges, but they're in trouble. And you just sort of say, man, if we don't give young kids, you know, teenagers, a fair shot in life, you know, if we don't make those years zero through 15, 16, 18 relatively balanced and equitable to give kids a fighting chance, we're sowing the seeds for our destruction. And I think that's playing out as we speak. We'll come back to Ted Dintersmith a little bit later. But that concern that it's education imperiling the future of our country, it's not something that we hear a whole lot about in presidential debates. And at least recently, it has felt dwarfed by other issues from guns to immigration. But if there's any truth to the idea that our current educational system is compromising the country's future, it's probably something that we should be hearing a lot more about. We will run into people that have have said and will say, well, you know, it worked for me, worked for me, and, and look, I turned out fine. And therefore, you know, they've got one data point themselves. It worked okay for me. And so, you know, why do we need to change? That's another former tech guy, Doug Burgum, someone who has intersected a lot with Dintersmith, as Dintersmith has traveled the country preaching a different sort of education model. Only Burgum's path in life went in another direction, though you can hear the tech background coming through in the way he talks. We want to get data in the room and get the ideology out of the room. And again, it's also going to take values because it's going, to, it takes, it's going to take courage to try to do things. It's going to take the humility to, for all of us to admit that what we were doing wasn't the best for all students. And we're going to have to you know, have the curiosity to keep trying new things because some of the stuff we try first may not be the right thing. I mean, some of the innovation may not work. Burgum is now the governor of North Dakota, and he's decided the status quo in education is not okay. Public schools in America have to be reinvented, and there's not a whole lot of time to lose. Not surprisingly, North Dakota is the lab where Burgum plans to prove this. And this particular lab is a pretty experimental one. First off, Burgum wants to get rid of grade levels. You know, the, le- the traditional learning model was, you, you know, you take a group of kids and let's call it, say we're in third grade, you all start out the year together. And then at the end of the year, then, you know, the goal is let's push 100% of those kids onto fourth grade. Now, during that time that they were in third grade, would all of them have learned the same amount? No. And it might be reflected that some of kids, you know, got A's and they were bored because they'd already achieved their 
what was being asked of them somewhere during the year, and then they're kind of bored going forward. Other people are struggling to keep up. Uh, but we know that, you know, even in a group of third graders, their age spread might be a year apart. We know that their learning styles may be different. And so if we're trying to, you know, teach to a, like a batch processing, you know, like a 1960s mainframe, if you're trying to do that, you're not going to get the results versus if you have the ability to do personalized learning, where each student is a learner, and that learner is going to learn differently in a different different rates and different pace. And if you said, okay, we're going to actually say these are the skills they need to have by sixth grade. These are the proficiencies they have to demonstrate. These are the masteries they have to have. Well, you know, someone might be further ahead at, you know, third, at the end of third grade than someone else, but the person who's behind, when they go to fourth grade, instead of, okay, now you're starting at the next, at a whole new set of things, and you got a C in math when you were a third grader, they just start where they left off at the end of third grade and go, okay, I've still got to learn these things. Because in these classrooms where this is working, sometimes the the teacher now is freed up from trying to stand in front and teach the whole batch. Mm-hmm. They have an opportunity to work individually. They get more time. If there's transparency in the classroom about the students that are more advanced, they can actually be resources to help kids that are further behind. Kids will go to other students for help. And of course, that's one way they reinforce their learning is by sharing and teaching with others. And we have to have the humility to say that what we've been doing doesn't work for everyone. Uh, it works for some, doesn't work for everyone. And and, and it's you know time to rethink think that if we really care about students and learning, we've got to, we've got to let go of the patterns and approaches that all of us might say, well, it worked for, worked for me. Right. Uh, why change? I mean, and that that's a really radical departure that you're describing where a, a teacher does not stand up in front of a class and say, okay, folks, today we're going to start learning long division. Um, you have individual kids. I mean, it's almost like a Montessori approach, right? You have individual kids sort of at different levels of reading and math. They're all sitting in the same room. Nobody's lecturing to them. Um, You talk about, in some ways, grades, like the, the notion that you're in third grade or fourth grade or fifth grade. That kind of falls away because if you're in the same class with somebody, but you're in different places, what does it really mean to be in fifth grade, right? Yeah, no, exactly, because it would be more about, you know, have you achieved the levels of proficiency in the coursework that you're set out to achieve and where you are at that level. And again, everybody everybody is a learner, and learners learn at different paces and different approaches. And we just, you know, and we start with that basis of acceptance. That alone is going to change it. And then, of course, we know that one of the challenges when we talk to Teachers around the state today, they say, wow, we're dealing with so many behavioral health issues in the classroom. We don't really have time to teach. That's one of the things we hear. Well, and, you know, schools that have gone around the country, some of the leading schools that have approached this model are seeing a big drop off on on referrals. You know, referrals would be the word for, hey, you know, you're not behaving. I'm sending you to the principal's office. But some of those, you know, drop because now you're engaging kids at the level that they can engage Mm -hmm. and they're neither, you know, bored nor behind and gives a chance to meet them more where they're at and understand what might be going on in their life outside of school that's causing them, you know, to have, uh, you know, behavioral challenges in school. And we, we can be, you know, approach this more empathetically about the person that's in front of us and less about the regimentation of, we're trying to get through, you know, this material this week at this pace, and everybody's everybody's got to get through it at the same time. And if you don't, I'm going to give you a low grade, which then starts eating into all kinds of other challenges that are related to to learning. Let me ask you about one more specific thing that you want to change, which has been a real sort of 
I would say, political hot-button issue for years, but you want to get rid of um, standardized tests and replace them with performance assessments. Why? Yeah, Kara, you know, super timely question because obviously it's in the news right now. Lots of discussion, debate on a national level about standardized testing. And of course, uh, you know, we know that there's a debate about what does it mean based on your socioeconomic group? What does it mean based on, you know, looking at tests by ethnicity, you know, the results, you know, change in very widely. So then people, how do you know, how do they adjust for this? And I, and I think, again, it, it's going to be very challenging because one of the key uses for standardized testing has been college admissions. And so this puts a ton of pressure on colleges to, you know, figure out a way to try to assess who's going to be successful in a collegiate sense if they don't have the standardized testing to kind of stack rank people. But there's a lot of unfairness that's built into that system. And so this is a big, it's a big lift. It's a big challenge. It's going to take not, you know, days or weeks or months. I mean, this is going to take years. Can you remember a a story from like a student or a teacher or something that's been told to you that that stuck with you? Um, either in terms of laying out what the problems are with the current system or how these changes are affecting them. Yeah, no, I mean, I've got one that sticks very clearly, which was we were meeting with a teacher who had spent uh, 11 years of her career teaching under the old model where I'm going to push kids in elementary math. I'm going to push kids from second grade to third grade or third grade to fourth grade, and I'm going to give them a grade, A, B, C, D, move them on up. I'll get a new batch of kids next year. When they transformed into this personalized learning, now she was teaching math across second through sixth grade. And she was in tears when she was talking to our task force. She said, I remember, I've been here 11 years. I remember giving kids C's and D's and thinking they're never going to, you know, make it in life because they can't understand this math. And I saw what happened to them in high school. Some of them dropped out. Some of them had, you know, self-esteem issues. Some of them never took any more advanced math. She goes, now I've had a chance to see kids that were struggling in second grade. And now I, you know, still have them in fifth grade and they have learned all the material. They've learned it all. They've caught up. And, and she, she was just said, you know, there's no going back. This, they, they'd spend an enormous amount of work on their own time over the summer trying to develop, you know, all the stages of the proficiency for this curriculum. But it's an inspiring to see that the teachers were saying, we have to learn ourselves. I mean, we're the teachers, but we have to become learners because we have to learn new approaches. And when you see people that have that kind of passion, the impact they have on children, then, then you know this is a fight that you have to keep on fighting for. Governor Doug Burgum of North Dakota, thank you so much for your time. Kara, thank you, and thanks for your focus on education. Appreciate it. That was Doug Burgum, the Republican governor of North Dakota. He signed an innovation bill in his state in 2017 that allows different school districts to adopt personalized plans to rethink their schools. He says in tech, innovation works in a grassroots way, and he thinks it'll work the same way in education. They think, like, why change something that um, seemed to work fine for us? And But yeah, it, it did work. That's kind of what my husband said. You know, it, we did fine. I'm like, yeah, we did fine. But think about those other, some other kids in your class that they struggled. And I can see how this system would have benefited so many people. Kristen Beam is living amidst those grassroots right now, talking to other parents and trying to track the rather epic changes going on in the Northern Cass School District in North Dakota. Her friend, Angie Freilich, has four children in the district. The oldest one is a daughter. Her science teacher was 
very big and you know he was kind of on the upper end of the spectrum with the personalized learning and kind of a leader in that area and just being able to backfill some areas that she maybe wasn't understanding allowed her huge growth in the second half of the year under the system so I think it was really encouraging for her for me as a parent and and on the other end you know my other three children seem more excited about school they're able you know some of them are really eager to keep working and you know, keep clipping along, I guess you could say. At Northern Cass, it's year three of implementing a new way of thinking about school. Next year, according to Superintendent Corey Steiner, percentage marks on tests are going to be eliminated. Nobody's going to be getting an 85 or a 90 percent anymore. And grade levels, too, will be gone. Though you might ask, as I asked Steiner, Does that mean that people are going to send their kids to school and just not know if they're in third grade or fifth grade? So we'll uh, identify a social level for kids, which it's their same age as their peers. So they're still in PE, they're still in choir, and the first couple years will be in science and social studies with same age peers. But when you ask, you know, are they in third grade, are they in fifth grade, are they in second grade? I think the answer is yes. Uh, And that's okay. If a kid's capable of doing math at a couple of years above where his peers are, they should be doing math at that level. If they read and struggle in that a little bit, it should be okay for them to go a little bit slower. So a lot of it is just getting past this idea that grade levels really truly mean something when in all reality, they're they based on just how old a child is. And I'll ask you the same thing kind of about grades. You know, most people think like, Gee, you know, if my kids are getting above, let's pretend it's an 80, you know, or uh, they're getting a B, I feel good about that. If they're getting A's and B's, that's good. If they're getting below that, I know they're not doing so well and I have to push them to work harder. But if they're not getting anything, if they're not getting any grade at all, how do parents um, think about that? How do they have any metric to know whether their kids know what they're doing in school, maybe, or, or need extra help or don't or what? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and it's certainly been one throughout this year as we've had a parent task force that that question has come up repeatedly. Uh, and, I, and I try to make sure people understand that it's a little bit of a misconception that they don't have grades, they don't have anything. They do. They, they do have grades. They have a reporting system. It's just not based on what we've traditionally looked at as a 90, 80, 70, 60 percent. Uh, and again, I, I would challenge anyone to show me if a 92 percent in our school looks the same as a 92 percent in another school. And, and being in this gig for about 20 years, I can tell you very often they don't. And so for us, the most important thing was to be able to show exactly where a learner is at. So parents will actually know where they're at in real time. Uh, we have a learning management system where in the past it's been, hey, did you bring your worksheet home? Let me see how you did on your worksheet. And, you know, if you're like my kids and the backpack isn't real clean, it might be a miracle to find those things. But what we have now is a learning management system where your parents will be able to go on there and actually look and see work in real time to be able to tell how their learners are doing. Does that mean if I'm a parent, I look um, online and I see that, like, this child has mastered the quadratic equation, they know, you know, they understand exponents, that kind of thing? Absolutely. They'll they'll see exactly what the standard is. It'll state it in in technical terms, but then also what we put down is like parent-friendly and learner-friendly terms, uh, and they'll be able to know exactly what skills their child is able to do according to that standard. So when this like totally different way of doing things was first presented to you, why did you think it was appealing? Like, why didn't you say, I, I mean, I run a school. It's great already. We don't need anything. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, and, and you know, you heard it. Uh, and I'll tell you, I think the F word that's the most dangerous one in the English language is find. And you hear it, and I hear it from everyone. Well, it was fine for me. But there's nowhere in our lives, and, and, I, and I honestly challenge you to think of something in your life that you'd be okay with fine. You know, if you pull out your phone, there used to be a phone cord attached to it and a rotary dial system, and no one would go back to that. We have all these things in our life where we've shown people we won't go back to that. But yet we sit on a, in a system that's got 150 years of tradition where deaths are really important. And it just, it just doesn't make sense. And, and we know we're losing kids. We know that we were losing kids. And, and we looked at it as a moral imperative to start doing something about that. We also had kids on our high end that were so bored. They'd walk into our school and they could not handle it because it was just such a, an archaic look. And we have great teachers, and, and anybody will tell you that. Our teachers are second to none, but the system is broke. And, and I believe that so wholeheartedly. Is there a student that you can think of, or multiple students, um, who kind of you know exemplifies the effect of running a school in this very different sort of way? So we have a, a, one young lady who throughout her personalized learning journey now, and she's done some things that that's a little bit more focused online because we have a program for kids that want to do that and control pace more. Uh, what she has done is she takes a two-hour chunk of her week and she goes down and works with our band instructor. And they're working on a concert band musical piece that she is writing because she's very interested in composing. And her ultimate exit project, her capstone project at Northern Cass is for them to play that concert band piece at her last concert. In a traditional system, she needs to be in class for 50 minutes a period, all day long, all week long. She's actually got a chance to explore a passion and dig extremely deep into that passion. She will tell you that she hated coming to school every single day until this like now she finally feels that people have validated who she is and respect who she is. Corey Steiner is the superintendent of Northern Cass School District, which is about 45 minutes north of Fargo. And when we come back, a final few minutes with Ted Dintersmith, the guy who spent a career funding growing tech firms, and who then, in retirement, got really worried that our educational system in America wasn't preparing kids for the jobs he knew lay ahead. You know, we sort of made this bet. It clearly, it stopped working to people's general satisfaction. You know, in the 1980s, 90s, we, we sort of had to decide, do we double down on the old model or reimagine? And I think we just said, we're going to double down. We're going to be more intense, ramp up the stakes on an obsolete model and expect that to be a great path forward. And it's failed. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. a guy named Horace Mann started pushing for better and more standard schools. He visited Prussia, which was then part of the German Empire, to get a little inspiration. And he decided that, yes, school was a great way to mold citizens, to promote obedience, and to bring people of different social classes together. I think actually one of the problems we deal with today is how brilliant the model was for most of the last century. 
That's Ted Dintersmith, who spent a career funding tech companies and then realized what his profession had done to Horace Mann's educational model, which, by the way, was immensely influential in shaping our school system. I mean, if you think about a world where there are lots of factory jobs and lots of, you know, like low-level administrative jobs, you know, you think of about a company like an AT&T. I mean, lots of job specifications and labor grades. And, you know, it's just like memorize and master content, replicate low-level procedures, follow instructions. That got you a long way in almost all the jobs that constituted the heart of the economy in the last century. But the thing is, that was the last century. This century is shaping up to be a little bit different. Dinter Smith now spends his time traveling around the country, advocating for a new approach to education, an approach that de-emphasizes, or even completely eliminates, standardized testing, conventional classrooms and grades, and emphasizes instead letting kids take initiative and help craft their own curriculum. So why the radical changes? He says it pretty much comes down to the ripple effects of a single technological advance, the Internet. And you just sort of look at the late 80s, early 90s, when everything started to to sort of fall apart. You know, the low-level stuff could be outsourced to India or could be done by more and more advanced software. And you just started to see this bifurcation, and, and you've got this phenomenal income divide. The people who know how to leverage technology and innovation do incredibly well, but so many are prepared to be victims of it. What I see and what gives me hope is when I go to places that unleash kids on complicated, ambiguous problems and let them draw on resources... So we're in Boston. I'll use a Boston example. It's not the kids in Wellesley that love that kind of ambiguity. You're I mean, talking about a high-income yeah, suburb of Boston. Yeah. You know, it's not the kids that on paper look like the outstanding students that love ambiguity and the fact you're going to fail multiple times. And when you go to these kids that have been told they're not gifted, they're not talented, they're I often joke the one SAT word they know is proficient because they've been told year in and year out they're not proficient because they don't do well on standardized tests on material they have no interest in without parents in their life pushing them to do well in something they don't care about. Give these kids a chance to do something that matters. Oh, my gosh. Over and over, the adults in their lives, whether it's teachers or parents or support staff, will say, I didn't know they had it in them. But they have it in them. It's just we crush it out of them. So you come from the tech world. If tech is in some ways what you're saying caused this change in the kind of jobs that are available and got a lot of people laid off because it's just kind of the nature of technological change, is learning things in unconventional schools, in groups, um, without grade levels, maybe in the same way that they've been talked about before, maybe without some of these standardized tests, is that a solution? It's a solution, but one of the things I really go after in my book is there isn't one model. There isn't one solution. I mean, think about the world of innovation. What's so great about it is people take creative, distinctive paths that they believe are the right path. But what one group does here is going to be completely different from what a different group does somewhere else. It's just this bold, audacious sense that you can do the thing you believe in and make it happen. I think we need a lot more of that in education, but we've been on this, you know, bent to standardize everything. And, you know, you look at No Child Left Behind and you look at Race to the Top. I mean, it's been bipartisan screw-ups. And you look at the ubiquity of AP courses, which I think in many ways do the exact opposite of what we need to do with kids. You know, it's like follow the curriculum day one through day 180, go to the bookstore, buy your AP flashcards. That's not preparing kids for the world they're going to be adults in. 
And so I feel like that, you know, it's been there. It's been, we sort of made this bet. It clearly stopped working to people's general satisfaction, you know, in the 1980s, 90s. We, we sort of had to decide, do we double down on the old model or reimagine? And I think we just said we're going to double down. We're going to be more intense, ramp up the stakes on an obsolete model and expect that to be a great path forward. And it's failed. How, I mean, how do you then assess standards? How do you know that kids are learning anything? Maybe they're interested in something, but what if the thing that they're interested in is comic book characters and they learn nothing but that? Not that that's not a good thing to know about, but it may not give you the breadth you need to apply to jobs someday. Yeah. You know, it gets back to what matters. And so if you say what matters is a kid temporarily memorizing what Century Chaucer wrote in, if that's what matters, then you need some fact-based test for that. I'd argue that the kids that temporarily memorize it have forgotten it sooner than uh, they get out the door. If what matters is communication skills, then if you had to get a kid writing on things they care about, reading, you know, actually with great passion because it's on something they're interested in, you can then look at, as New Hampshire does, these authentic samples of writing and see if, if a school says this 10th grader is writing at an adequate level or a proficient level or excellent level, and you're able to look at a handful of their writing samples, you have a pretty good sense of whether they can write well or not. I mean, back to my days in venture capital, I quickly decided I didn't care where somebody went to school and never ask about grades or SATs. I would ask for three writing samples. I would just say, send me three writing samples to tell me what I should know about you. Turns out you can learn so much when somebody selects what they want you to look at and it's what they believe is their best work. So I think if we look at real examples, and and a lot of the schools that are making great strides have a big emphasis on these public exhibitions of learning. Show the world what you've learned. And it could be a science. Where do kids really learn science? Is it the Intel Science Fair competition or is it AP Physics? I think kids learn a lot more science in a science fair setting than they do in an AP course. But you still need, even if you're really motivated to write about rap or, you know, uh, uh, the history of Mexico or whatever it is, um, you still need somebody to come in and correct your writing. And it seems to me that wealthy school, or if you're really interested in doing a science fair, you're still going to need somebody who knows some physics to come in and be like, well, let me give you a little help on this. Like, it's hard to just learn physics or calculus from, from all by yourself, right, from nothing. It still seems to me that the places that are doing well now, you know, that have a lot of money, that have motivated parents, no matter how you change the school, people are good at adjusting. And it seems like poorer schools would still be at a terrible disadvantage because are they going to get the teachers that, you know, like are really great at writing, you know, if they don't pay the high salaries? It just seems like it's hard to break out given the way that we fund schools of the situation we're in now. Yeah. So I often talk about the achievement gap and, and which has been our obsession in education for 20 years or more. And I say there are only two things we have wrong with achievement gap. You know, the first is gap and the second is achievement. So the gap that matters is how much money we spend on schools. And that's an uncomfortable discussion. And you can go to places I write about in Mississippi where one school in a suburb of Jackson was the plushest school campus I can imagine. And 12 miles away was a school in inner city Jackson that should be condemned. You know, and if we don't get at that, we're leaving so many kids vulnerable. And it's sort of shame on us as a society. So I think it's an important problem to step up to. The second, though, is achievement. And 
if the measure of success in schools is irrelevant material kids don't care about, and when they ask, am I ever going to use it, the honest answer is you're not. You know, when I go around the country and ask students how excited they are to do test prep, I've probably been in settings with 100,000 students in the last five years. I've yet to find one that's excited about test prep. When you ask parents, how excited are you for your kid to do test prep? There are a lot of parents that are exceptionally excited that their kid does test prep, and they pull out all stops, right? And so if the figure of merit is an SAT score or an AP score or whatever, that, I think, reflects far more the push and tenacity of the parents in that kid's life. And, you know, that's not to say it's strictly the rich parents, but by and large, the rich parents have more discretionary income. They hired the nanny that teaches a kid Mandarin when they're three years old. I mean, a bunch of different things that, that make an already tilted playing field even more tilted. What's interesting is when I talk to large groups of adults, I'll say, think back during the period of time you were in school. What experiences stand out as making you the person you are today? What really shaped you as a person? It's almost never a class. It's often an after-school activity, a sports team. It's often an adult, sometimes a teacher, sometimes a support staff that gave me a conviction that I was worth something, I could do something, gave me a sense of belief in myself. And it's often a teacher who's such a subject matter expert, they just get the kid excited about that. I just loved art because of that teacher. But it's those types of things and sort of focusing on what works, what makes a difference, what changes lives, and highlighting that, drawing it out, letting it be celebrated, and then trying to do more of it. That's what we say. Build on strengths. So where is this all heading? I mean, uh, Governor Burgum of North Dakota is really trying to do some very outside-the-box things, though North Dakota is a small state with a relatively small population and small schools. So maybe we can imagine uh, individualized learning better in a, you know, school that has 12 kids per class than 32 kids per class. Um, where do you think this all heads? I mean, and and not necessarily where you want it to head, but you, you visited a lot of places. What's really happening? Where are things going to be in 10 or yeah. 20 years? Are they going to be pretty much where they are now? Yeah. We don't have infinite time. I mean, if you follow your series, I mean, there is a l- remarkable amount of progress in artificial intelligence and agile robotics. And so as those advance, more and more people that are only able to do routine things are in a heap of trouble. So th- this isn't something where we can just say, oh, we might get to it in two decades. But, you know, like, it's not urgent. It is urgent. Where I get excited, I love the phrase, change happens slowly right up until it happens quickly. As I travel, I find passionate change agents at every school and every community. And what I find is this whole thing of, and whether it's around some of the stuff I'm doing or different approaches, there are a lot of people doing great work, but this whole idea of giving students more voice in their learning and aligning the learning more with the real world, people get the fact that that's not just a trend, that that really is the only way we've ever really learned. But these kids will do amazing things. But if we keep putting them through a meat grinder and telling them the vast majority you're not proficient and holding out as the high watermark something machine intelligence does perfectly, instantly, for free, what happens? What happens when you have a country with millions and millions of, of adrift adults who can't struggle to put money on the, you know, and they're not saving anything, struggle to just put food on the table and, and a roof over their head that are just let down by a system? And, and what do they do? They do throw hand grenades at the ballot box or worse. And if we don't get this right, and that's why I do this. That's why I travel all the time. That's why I, I do my best to help and get these proof points that show 
what the possibilities are if we get this right. But it's stark. I mean, it's not that it's, it's you know, it's not uh, our NAEP score is going to go up 0.7% or drop 0.4%, and that's a big deal. This is not that. This is millions of lives that hang in the balance if we get school right. And if we don't, it's our fault. You know, 10-year-olds can't tell us what we should be doing with them in school. We adults know. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to sort of say, where do we learn at our best? What prepares kids for a world where careers come and go, where anything you think you're going to do could be quite different in five to 10 years, where artificial intelligence and agile robotics do more and more of the routine? And, th- and then ask yourself, why do we do school the way we do it? And, and when you really step back and, and dive into that, I think you'll reach the same conclusion I did, which is it's not just wasting their time, it's impairing their futures. And if we know that and once we see it, we have to step up. Ted Dintersmith is an education philanthropist. He's the author of What School Could Be. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. You can learn more about all of our guests, from the governor of North Dakota, Doug Burgum, and how he's aiming to change schools in that state, to Ted Dintersmith and the sorts of changes that he's advocated. That's on our website, innovationhub.org. And a special thank you to Prairie Public Radio in North Dakota for all their help with this story. 